I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, a god of thunder takes on a god butcher with the fate of the universe at stake. Kids, get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. An English crane driver faced with redundancy retrains for a very different career. He is the world's worst professional golfer. No, sorry, I don't, I don't agree with that. I'm not the world's worst golfer and I'm willing to prove it. And music legend Nick Cave also retrains for a very different career. I took the, um, go- the government's um, advice to, to um, um, retrain. I've, 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 I've retrained as a ceramicist because it's no longer um, viable to be a, a, to be a, a musician, touring a, touring, a touring artist. Yeah. Thor Love and Thunder is the fourth standalone Thor movie from Marvel Studios since Chris Hemsworth first wielded Mjolnir the hammer back in 2011. Feels longer. Of course, he's turned up as Thor in a few other Avengery films over that time, so we're never too far away from Hemsworth in a wig and a cape. Where the last two Thors have been much more interesting and, dare I say it, entertaining than the first two, has been the introduction of Taika Waititi to the creative hot seat. In Ragnarok in 2017, Waititi and Hemsworth combined with Kate Blanchett to make a film that was light-hearted, but also about genocide at the same time. Hold on, that's the same plot as Jojo Rabbit, isn't it? Anyway, more analysis on that level later on. But first, a plot summary. Since the last Avengers film, Thor has been pootling around the universe with the Guardians of the Galaxy, doing heroic things with his usual mix of muscle-bound innocence and incomprehension. Has he found a family at last? Meanwhile, on another planet, a simple peasant named Gore prays for the life of his daughter during a terrible drought. His devotion to the god Rapu is not rewarded, in fact, quite the opposite. The source of Rapu's power, the Necro Sword, offers itself to him so he can take his revenge on Rapu and then on all the other selfish, indolent and indifferent gods in the universe. He becomes Gore, the God Butcher. Incidentally, in the comics, the Necro Sword is also known as the All Black, which strikes me as a promotional opportunity missed. 
Back on Earth, Thor's first girlfriend, Jane Foster, played once again by Natalie Portman, has stage 4 cancer. A cancer that nobody in the film acknowledges was probably caused by her adventures with Thor back in the dark world. She travels to New Asgard in Norway, where the shattered hammer Mjolnir puts itself together again to give her the power to overcome her disease. Or is that the only reason? So that's the ex-girlfriend, is it? The old ex-girlfriend. Jodie Foster. Jane Foster. The one that got away. The one that got away. That means escaped. Yeah. Yeah. Must be hard for you to see your ex-girlfriend and your ex-hammer hanging out and getting on so well. What you up to, bro? Just calling you. Anyway, enough about the plot. That's just the setup. Suffice to say that Thor, his amusing rock like sidekick Korg, once again played by Waititi himself, Foster, and King Valkyrie, Tessa Thompson, team up to try and stop Gore from destroying all the gods one by one, even though some of them clearly deserve it. Gore is played by a brilliant and committed Christian Bale, the latest in the long line of -of top-of-the-line movie actors to front up for a Marvel movie, and he really is jolly good. Get the best actors you can find, I say, even if you then bury them under a mountain of makeup. I've heard some carping from critics that this film is Waititi at his most indulgent. It's just Taika being Taika, they say. The shtick is getting old, but I disagree. This is clearly Waititi mining the same seam and the same themes as all of his films since Eagle vs. Shark back in 2007, and even before that. But I'm not sure if he's pulled off the balancing act quite as successfully before this. What balancing act, I hear you ask? The balancing act between sincere emotion, pain, loss, grief, and the need that he has to undercut that emotion with silly jokes. It's a natural human habit, we've all done it, but Waititi has made it his signature effect to the extent that the tonal shifts can seem confounding. His central characters are often lost, alienated from father figures who are missing, like Jojo Rabbit or Ricky Baker in Hunt for the Wilder People, or useless, like Alamein in Boy, or a despotic bully, like Odin in the Thor films. His central characters are always being let down by the people who are meant to love them. And then they have to go and find someone else who'll do the job, even if those people are not always appropriate family material. They're in the Shadow Realm. How do you know? The atmosphere there has a darkness like no other. It's as if colour fears to tread. It's unmistakable. Well, then, if it's colour we need, let's bring the rainbow. Bring the rainbow, is that a catchphrase or something? She's only been a Thor for a minute. I mean, saving lives she's quite good at, but the rest of it, she needs work. How many catchphrases have there been? A lot. Yep, jump the gun. Hang on, he moves through shadows and he's going to the shadow realm. It seems like that's where he's going to be the most powerful. You're right, we can't just go marching in there. It could be a trap. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? I'm thinking it. What are we thinking? Thinking what? Thinking it too. Omnipotency. I once described Waititi's boy as either the saddest comedy I'd ever seen or the funniest tragedy, and I couldn't pick which. There's a reason, I think, why Thor, the character, fits in so well with Waititi's endless exploration of these themes. 
Hemsworth plays him as the innocent abroad, the naive man-child with a limited set of skills but a big heart and a big ego. But he also plays those brief moments of sadness terribly well. They're very brief because, like every Waititi hero, the disappointment has to be hidden and the brave face put back on. In Love and Thunder, he even goes looking for the greatest father of them all, Zeus, and is, of course, disenchanted. He has more in common with Gore the God Butcher than he knows. So, I absolutely loved Thor Love and Thunder. I laughed at the fun bits and I cried at the sad bits. I'm sure I'll enjoy watching it again. In fact, this one might be worth adding to the at-home collection. That's about as much as anyone can ask for a film these days, I think. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months and six days. Give or take. Am I, uh, sensing feelings? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Thor, Love and Thunder is rated M for violence and is the number one film all over New Zealand now. I'm here with a legend of the golfing world. A man who has broken records and rewritten the history books. Morris Flipcroft. <coughs> Brush me. You made your name in the British Open in 1976. Now, why did you choose that particular tournament? Well, it was... Morris chose me, really. It, it was a calling. You Americans might call it a destiny. And it was an unlikely destiny, wasn't it? Because you were working as a crane operator at the time, am I right? Yes, but when I took up the game of golf in uh, 1975, I was working full-time as a crane driver, or operator, as you would say. So, well, tell us about the young Morris Flitcroft. Did you dream of becoming a sportsman as a child? I, I had dreams, but, uh, you know, where I, where I come from, Baron Furness, uh, it's a small world, put it like that. In one of those weird little coincidences that makes you think that there might be a god playing tricks on you after all, Tessa Thompson's King Valkyrie in Thor Love and Thunder spends quite a bit of the picture wearing a Phantom of the Opera t-shirt from the famous Andrew Lloyd Webber show. And why not? She looks like she could be a fan of musical theatre. And then, the next day, I go and see a film called The Phantom of the Open, named after a book, which was named after a newspaper headline, which was named after a nickname for an English crane operator and fabulist called Morris Flitcroft, who still holds the record for the worst round ever shot at the British Open, 121 in the 1976 qualifying rounds. Flitcroft was a stubborn man, and when he was banned by the British golfing establishment for pretending to be professional so he could gain entry to the Open, he continued to try, often using false names and disguises. He was a peculiarly British character, and The Phantom of the Open is a very British film, one that owes more to the broad 1970s television spin-off films like Are You Being Served or On The Buses than the slightly grittier stuff like The Full Monty. There are some dodgy 70s wigs and facial hair on offer, some wide ties and lapels, you know the sort of thing, but it doesn't seem to build its world with much care and attention. It's all a bit of a joke, and so is Paul Morris. We 
you've come outside to the studio car park to meet the man who shot a world record 121 at the British Open. He is the world's worst professional golfer. No, sorry, I don't I don't agree with that. I'm not the world's worst golfer and I'm willing to prove it. Okay, great. So we have set up a little golf course here in the car park. Yeah, it's not it's not a golf course, it's a putting green. Great. It's exciting, isn't it? Oh, now that was close. That was just a practice shot, you know, and get the pace to the green. Yes, well, it, it has been raining out here, so uh, so it could be a little bit damp, couldn't it? Oh, now, you feel that you should be let back into the Open, is that right? Yes, an Open Championship, you know, should be open to everyone, uh, like the FA Cup, you know, give the, give the little teams a chance. Oh, now, bad luck. Flitcroft is played by Academy Award winner Mark Rylance, one of the finest British actors ever to tread the boards. But since that Oscar for Bridge of Spies back in 2015, I've found his screen performances to be somewhat idiosyncratic, as if he's bored with naturalism and wants to play with it a bit. But that play can often come at the expense of the ensemble or the whole story. In Ready Player One and Don't Look Up, he played similar tech entrepreneurs, people who are not really of this world. They see beyond it, into a world only they can imagine. I'm sure there's truth in characterizations like that, but that sense of a character not really being present in his scenes, or even in his own life to any great extent, can make that character a pretty frustrating one to watch. And it's that kind of performance that Rylance brings to Flickcroft. He's playing him as a dreamer with an accent and a moustache, a walking apology for his distractions and his obsessions, but with not much else going on to build a film on. At the end, as is so often the case these days, the filmmakers present some real-life footage of the man so we can compare, and it's a puzzling choice. Because the Flickcroft in the grainy video is nothing like the version that Rylance produces, and then you see why Rylance has made those choices because 90 minutes impersonating that dreariness wouldn't sell a ticket. But replacing it with two or three mannered character traits doesn't really help either. Maybe Flickcroft did a couple of eccentric things once and then found he had to keep going, but that alone doesn't make him interesting. Oh, <laughs> you practice on the beach and all. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, my English... Uh... Oh, no, um, uh, pra practice on the player también. Ah. Sí, sí, sí. Al menos estaremos bien desde los bunkers. <laughs> bunkers, <laughs> sí. Um, Morris, Morris Flitcroft. Severiano Ballesteros. ¿Y qué? Solo llámame Seve. Oh, sí, Seve, Seve. Mm. ¿Estás nervioso? Uh, oh, sí, eh, no. ¿No te pones nervioso? Uh, no ve. Um, un error uh, para mí... Uh, it's the opportunity to aprend algo nuevo sobre el golf, ¿sí? Uh -huh. uh, ¿Qué mal? Uh, ¿Cómo puedo hacerlo uh, uh, um, bueno air? You know what I mean? Also, and I'm sorry to aficionados out there, but golf isn't very cinematic. One player against a ball simply doesn't generate the tension that a great sports film can. Or at least it doesn't here. I used to be quite fond of televised golf late on a winter's night, watching random people walking around the countryside in warm sunshine, the occasional pause, silence, then thwack, and then more walking, 
I found that very soothing, but not terribly dramatic. To ratchet up the tension here, we have to have Rhys Ifans as the secretary of the royal and ancient pretend to have steam coming out of his ears. It's one of the more thankless roles I've witnessed in recent British cinema. The saving grace is Sally Hawkins as the saintly Jean Flitcroft, the rock the whole adventure is built on. Often an annoyingly fussy actor, but when confronted by Rylance's teeth and wig, she sensibly dials it back and tries to find the heart of the film. And for the most part, she succeeds. I knew a young man once. Said he was going to be somebody. Promised me diamonds, caviar, champagne. Travel the world, he said. Sounds like you, you should have married him. <laughs> I know you've made sacrifices for us, Morris. You don't have to look after us anymore. It's your turn now. For what? Oh, it's up to you, isn't it? Can't think of everything. <laughs> the Phantom of the Open is rated M for offensive language, but not for offensive northern stereotypes. And you can find it at select cinemas all over the country now. I like lots of people around me But don't kiss hello and please don't touch It's a Czechoslovakian custom my mother passed on to me The way to make friends Andy is invite them up for tea Open house Finally, something a little bit different There's a streaming service available here in New Zealand called Mubi M-U-B-I dot com. And it specialises in classic and modern art house films, festival favourites, international pictures, that sort of thing. The premise is mostly that films are only on the site for a month. Every time you visit, you see the countdown of what's about to leave. That has a tendency to focus one's attention. But they also have an increasing number of films that are in the permanent collection. And they're exclusive. And I want to focus on a couple here. Artist Andy Warhol died in 1987, and former Velvet Underground bandmates Lou Reed and John Cale spoke to each other for the first time in years at his memorial and decided to work together on an album that would tell the story of Warhol, memorialise him, and they were going to call it Songs for Dreller. In late 1989, they got together to perform songs from the as-yet-unfinished album at Brooklyn Academy of Music, and rehearsals were filmed by the acclaimed cinematographer Ed Luckman. The eventual film was released on VHS and Laserdisc, and then lost, until last year, when, searching for material for the new Netflix documentary about the Velvet Underground, Luckman found the original 16mm negative in his loft. Sony had the master audio files, so it was a short leap to a high-definition restoration of Songs for Drella, which is screening now exclusively on Mubi. And then I saw Lou. I'm so mad at him. Lou Reed got married and didn't invite me. I mean, is it because he thought I'd bring too many people? I don't get it. He could have at least called. I mean, he's doing so great. Why doesn't he call me? I saw him at the MTV show and he was one row away and he didn't even say hello. I don't get it. You know, I hate Lou. I really do. He won't even hire us for his videos. 
was so proud. That's John Cale using Warhol's own diaries as the basis for the song A Dream. Songs for Drella is one of the most extraordinary performances. Two people who don't like each other very much collaborating in memory of someone who was incredibly influential in both their lives but who they feel they let down somehow. These are songs and performances filled with loss and regret and animosity and respect. Anyone who has ever lost someone too soon, and isn't that all of us, will see themselves in these songs, no matter how specific they are to Andy Warhol. Also exclusive to Mubi is a brilliant new documentary and performance movie about the Australian balladeer Nick Cave called This Much I Know To Be True. It's the second collaboration with fellow Australian director Andrew Dominic, the guy who made Chopper and The Assassination of Jesse James, and the forthcoming biography of Marilyn Monroe, Blonde. Anyone who has seen earlier films about Cave, especially 20,000 Days on Earth from 2014, will know that you can't always take what he says about himself at face value. But as he's become older, and the vicissitudes of life have taken their toll, he's become a much less opaque character. Here he is talking about his website, The Red Hand Files, where fans get to ask him questions about life and art and other things. There are over 36,000 questions on the site, evidently, and it would not be possible to answer every single one. But the questions that do get Cave's attention get his full attention. The thing I really love about the, the Red Hand Files and why I, I almost consider this to be like a, a spiritual practice is that I'm forced to think about these questions um, and not respond immediately. When, when, I, when, I, when I do respond immediately in, in my mind, I don't respond with the better part of my nature, I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, it requires some days to sort of think about what the person's saying and to arrive at a compassionate um, relationship to the question and to the person who's, who's writing in. That actually doesn't come naturally to me. And so the red hand files literally keep me at the better end of my nature. This much I know to be true is mostly music new music, with his regular collaborator these days, the hilarious Warren Ellis. The film does make a strong case for Ellis to be given his own documentary. The songs are filmed in an abandoned factory in Bristol, apparently, but it does look like a space that is exceptionally well-equipped for performance and filmmaking. Some of the songs are acoustic and semi-improvised, and some slowly add band members, including a cameo from a Covid-affected Marianne Faithful. But all of the songs are beautifully photographed by the great Robbie Ryan. One final note about Mubi.com is that they offer free subscriptions for students, indeed anyone with an education email address, so that includes teaching staff. That's better value than just about anything else out there. If I could move the night I would And I would turn the world round if I could there's nothing wrong with loving something you can't hold in your hand. You're sitting on the edge of the bed, smoking and shaking your head. Well, there's nothing wrong with loving something that can barely even stand. 
This Much I Know To Be True and Songs for Drella are both rated Caution, contains material that may not be suitable for children and young adults, and both are streaming on Mubi.com now. I watch them as a double feature and recommend you do the same. I really care a lot Although I look like I do not Since I was shot There's nobody but you And that's our program for this week. This is another clip from the Lou Reed and John Cale film Songs for Drella. It's called Nobody Like You. This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. Next week on the program, we'll go to Where the Crawdads Sing, meet a quiet girl from Ireland and a grey man from Netflix. Please join me here at the same time next week. Since I got shot, there's nobody but you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.